Let's all pray. We get into the Word of God and focus on God in whatever situation we're in. Father, we thank you, Jesus. You are a good God, and uh, you are a big God, a great God. And Lord, we, we uh, acknowledge your, your presence, your authority. Not only that, but the authority of your word in our lives. Father, we, we know that the truth that is contained in your, in your word is the only thing that will change us, will save us, deliver us, and transform us to become more and more like Jesus. However, with our limitation of understanding, compared to the vastness and the greatness of, of, of your truth, our mind will not be able to comprehend and understand. And because of that, we ask that you, that you pour out your spirit to, uh, into our hearts that everything about us, our minds, our hearts, our emotion, everything, Lord, will be touched by your truth. And thus, transform us, Lord, so that we can become, we'll be more and more like Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I, uh, while I was away, I listened to Calvin's sermon, great sermon. I listened to Joshua's sermon. And uh, Joshua talk about, talked about uh, uh, stewardship. And I thought, came back, pretty much he touched on his stewardship with life itself. So uh, I thought, wow, you know, and faced with, with the situation with Dan's dad, I thought, wow, this is really, this really spoke to me. So I, I was, uh, because of that, I want to build on that. And therefore, I'm going to read from, uh, from the Bible, obviously. You know, I am not going to read from a Reader's Digest. So if you would like to go to Ecclesiastes, we're going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll start from verse, verse 1. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heavens. A time to, to be born, a time to die, a time to plant a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in his time. He has also said, I want you to underline that, he has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. 
that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. How many of you actually have read the book of Ecclesiastes? Interesting. Ecclesiastes is a very unique book in the Bible. It is in the Bible, it falls within the category that scholars would say wisdom literature. All right? The wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is one of them. And as a matter of fact, Job is, is part of our wisdom literature. Some, some people would uh, put it in that way. And uh, it, it is, even though it is part of a wisdom literature, but the wisdom in Ecclesiastes is different to that of the book of Proverbs. The Proverbs, when you read Proverbs, it's very straightforward. You fear the Lord, you do this, you get that. You do this, you get that, you know? It's kind of like reading Proverbs or listening to Justin Timberlake. What goes around, comes around, comes around, comes around. Back around. You know? <laughs> yeah, because that's, <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Like, you, you do this, you get that. And then, <laughs> and then, can you imagine someone like Job, uh, like Job reading, reading, uh, reading, uh, Proverbs, like listening to Justin Timberlake, and, he, and then he would come up with the song, What about me? It isn't fair. <laughs> because he said, Now I fear God, but this thing happened to me. It didn't happen the way I expected it to be. Right? <laughs> and then you read Ecclesiastes, almost. Some people actually commented to me when I read Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, like I feel depressed. It's almost like listening to Karen Carpenter's rainy days and Mondays always get me down. <laughs> because the the difference with, between the proverb, the book of Proverbs to Ecclesiastes is that Proverbs answered almost every question, whereas Ecclesiastes is asking a lot of questions about life. It's a good book for the existentialists because it challenges them about their approach to life, which believes that a man or a woman determines his or her own life and destiny and is solely, solely responsible to give meaning to his or her life. That's, you know, looking at life straightforward in that way. So the writer pretty much claim that life is not as straightforward as we would like it to be. And the reality, we all fight for justice. Sometimes in life, justice is not served <laughs> the way we would like it to be. People just don't get what they deserve. That's pretty much the content of Ecclesiastes. However, he said, the true meaning of life then must come from outside of this created world. 
which is temporal. And that's why if you read the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, he encouraged the readers. He said in chapter 12, verse 1, he said, remember also your creator in the days of your youth. How many young people here? Good. Only one. <laughs> remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. It's a good book for Christians too because we as Christians also sometimes look at life and biblical theology too straightforward, too simplistic, right? You get, it's almost like, I think I've mentioned it before, you treat God like, like a vending machine. You push the right button, you get the right result. You push the right button, you get the right result. It's kind of like that. If I just do this, I will get that. The problem is with the vending machine, when you do that, when you push the, the, the button and you don't get the right result, what, what, would, what would be your, your reaction? That machine is not working. And you shake it, you kick it, you get frustrated, you just leave it, I'm gonna try another machine. That kind of Christianity, I, I see many people, they don't get what they expect, you know, they get frustrated with God, they say, I might just try something else. <laughs> so, this good, this book is good for Christians because it teaches us that God is bigger than our perceived theology. When we think we've boxed God in our particular theological box, we will discover he will break out of that box very soon. <laughs> and that the intricacy of life is because God is so big, so vast, and we are so small. That's a big gap. And we don't understand. That's why, I'm going to say this, right throughout the Bible, the only thing we have to do with God is just to what? Trust Him. Believe Him. Okay, as we deal with, with Ecclesiastes, let, let's look at the, uh, to understand Ecclesiastes, look, look at the book as a whole. The key saying in Ecclesiastes is life under the sun. Okay, it's repeated a few times. And there's one particular phrase, vanity, vanity, it repeated the whole, how many, have, have you read Ecclesiastes? Vanity or, or useless or all those things. But, but actually the, the word should not be transla translated just vanity because the, the Hebrew word is hebel. Hebel, hebel, hebel. Hebel means enigmatic. That's probably the closest translation to the word. Not vanity, not useless, but enigmatic. Life is an enigma. So this, uh, the, the writer of, of Ecclesiastes is not pessimistic about life because somebody told me, man, I read Ecclesiastes and I get depressed because he was, it's almost like he's very negative. No, he's not negative. He, okay, he looks at life as face value. On face value, life looks like this. Life under the sun. You know the key, the, the key saying? Under the sun, I see life 
is an enigma. It's fragile and fleeting nature of existence is what life is. And pretty much the writer said there are many unanswered questions. <laughs> but his message in, in the book is that because of that, we should seize the moment while we live in this life. So that's pretty much the feel of, of the book. Now, as you read, you will find there's a, there's, a, there's a pattern in the book of Ecclesiastes. You can write this down. A pattern throughout the different, different chapters, you will see this is what the, the writer would do. He would do observation, and sometimes, and then after observation, and he would do, especially first two chapters, he would do observation and he would experiment with life. And then evaluation is the, the, the third step. And then the last one, he will make a conclusion or perspective on what he discovered. For example, the first observation in, in chapter one, he, uh, he made an observation and he studied creation and human history. And, the, and he discovered that despite of the best human effort, there is no real advantage or profit. They are not able, human, we are not able, we as human, we are not able to induce significant change in the course of this life. In other words, and, and he made this comment, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is already in order. What happened before will happen again. What happened before will happen again. He looked at creation. The water comes to the mountain and goes to the sea and comes back to the mountain. So he studied creation. He said, really, there's nothing new under the sun. Mankind cannot add into that. And also, yeah, he, he looked at history and... He said, whatever you think, you're doing something new, I think you're ignorant if you think something is new. Whatever happened has happened before. So in his observation, he then we, 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 as we read, he made some experiments. He experimented with wisdom in chapter 1, verse 12 to 18. And he, he tried wisdom. But he finds that the more we know, the more painful life can be. <laughs> if anything, human wisdom increases his insight to the pain of life, but is powerless to change its injustice and iniquities. And then he went to another experiment. He, he experimented with pleasure in chapter 2. He cheered himself with wine. He started to drink wine. And then he went to, uh, after, after pleasure, he tried uh, achievement, chapter 2, verse 2 to 4. He undertook projects, you know, bought house, houses and vineyards and, you know, paradise-like garden. And he, he acquired slaves, even with singers like that of a king. So he had great possessions. So we... we We've got the observation and experiment. And now, in chapter 2, verse 13, he came up with the evaluation. 
And his evaluation is wisdom has better, is better comparatively than folly, but it has no lasting advantage he was looking for. And also discovered that it is beyond dispute that the same faith, a same faith of death is the end of both the wise person and the foolish person. He tried pleasure and he discovered that just as wisdom bring, does not bring a lasting benefit that supersede death, neither do human achievement produce anything or pleasure. His success only made him made disappointment feel more bitter because it promises more than it can produce. <laughs> and then he came up with a conclusion in chapter 2, verse 24 to 26. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. And listen to this. This truth I see is from the hand of God. You notice he put God it's like with everything, if God is in perspective, everything's going to be fine. So, then he made the second observation, which is our, our passage that we just read. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. So what he's done, he, he continues to build on the same idea that every human action can be traced ultimately to the sovereignty of God. Everything. And the thought behind that, every t that everything, there's a season and, and a time for everything in verse 1, pretty much what he was implying is this, that beyond the routine of human activities, God is working out a plan with the fulfillment that will come at his right time. His time. With everything we do, the writer Prima said, listen, you can do whatever you want to do. At the end, God has the last say. Every time, everything has its time, and it, God's going to do it in his time. In, and that we are not in control. He is. <laughs> because the implication is that there is an appointed time. And here's the thing. By saying that there's a time and a season for everything, but he's saying is like there is an appointed time in every human activity, human life that is imposed by an outside force. That's what he's saying. We are not in control. And that force is God. And he described what that looks like. And he made his point. From verse 2 to 8, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, you know, all the way to verse 8, a time to search, a time to give up, you know. The list, if you, if you look at the, the list that he, that he actually, that he's written down, pretty much he lists a major personal events such as birth, death, to the great sort of communal and national events such as war and peace. 
And he puts two extreme sort of events, activities like time to kill, time to you know, like time to search, time to give up. All these, all these activities and human emotional states, only to say that God is in control over all of that. In every aspect of human life, be it nationally, be it communal, be it you know, individual, pretty much he gave all this extreme of every activities from death to life to war and peace just to say God is, God is in control over all of those things. Now, I just want to give you a background. The book of Ecclesiastes was written after the exile, after the return. So Israel and Judah and those guys, they were, they were rebellious. They were all kinds of things. They did stupid things. So, so God gave them over to, to Gentiles. And Judah went to, to, uh, to Babylon, Babylon under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar the emperor. Now, just imagine, it was a time of war, it was a devastating time. Okay, All to, up to that point, Israel, every time they went to war, as long as they had the, 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 uh, the, the uh, covenant, what do you call it, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, they always gained victory. And then the Ark of the Covenant ultimately being brought into the temple, the most holy temple, not just a tabernacle, but you know, the temple, but you have the, uh, the, the outer court, the, the holy place, and the most holy place where no one could touch. As a matter of fact, somebody tried to touch the Ark of the Covenant, and God killed him. Now imagine, so in other words, they think, man, no one, we are undefeated, no one can come. Okay, the worst thing is, they may be de defeat us, but no one can come to the temple to the most holy place, because you can't even touch the Ark of the Covenant. All of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar came and ransacked the temple. temple. Could you imagine what would be in the, in the mind of the Jews? Like, you mean their God is stronger than our God? Can you imagine that? Even our priests you know, are very careful in touching. No, they wouldn't touch it. They will bring the offering. And this king just came. How could he do that? Is it possible that his God is greater than our God? <laughs> Not realizing that as we read the book of the prophets, uh, prophets, that Nebuchadnezzar was just a puppet in the hands of God. Looking back now, we retrospectively speaking, as we read the Bible, he was just an instrument of God to bring judgment to God's own people. Right? That's why someone like him watched the history is like, wow, actually God is in control of everything. Sometimes it seems, life seems to deal, to give you the, the, the worst deal in life. And you think, is there an answer to this? It's a good question. But like the writer of Ecclesiastes is like, no, actually God is in control over everything. 
everything. So his evaluation is, so what does the worker gain from his toil in this life? And in, in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, he says, I have seen the burden God laid on man. What is that burden? Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. He also set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot, they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning. So on the one hand, we are bound by time and season. And yet on the other hand, God puts eternity in our hearts. So what are we supposed to do? There's a tension between us being bound by time and then, and yet there's eternity being placed in our heart. And the result of that is as mankind, unlike other, other creature in the world, we always intuitively look for something beyond our existence. Like a dog, you feed him, that's it, that's the end of it. He doesn't care about anything else. There's something about humans that are always looking for something beyond their existence. On the one hand, we have this sense of eternity that causes an impulse in us to want to reach beyond our current existence. Yet on the other hand, our finite limitation of time makes us not capable to fulfill our intuition. And this limitation makes it impossible for men to fathom what God has done from the beginning in verse 11. And then he made a conclusion in verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his store. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. We can't add to it. We can't do anything about it. So what does that really mean to, to you and I? You know, as I was uh, as I was just laying, not sitting next to, 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 to Diane's dad. He was laying down on his bed, unconscious the whole time. This is yesterday. I just prayed. And I just said to, to him, you know, I said, Dad, you've lived your life well. And uh, just let me just be personal here. Because... When he was still still awake, every time I held his hand, he would look at me, and you just know he loved you. You know, like he looked at me and and half teary and just hung on to my hands and and uh, even surprised Diane and 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 her mom. And I said, you got, you guys need to understand that 
I have your family as my family longer than I've ever had about my own family in Indonesia. And my dad died when I was six years old, and, and I said, everything I learned about what, what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a father from him. I was a man living his life totally devoted to his wife. Totally. Without realizing that's what I do. I do everything for my wife. <laughs> and uh, I thought, what an impartation that is, you know? So my thing is like, okay, Dad, you live your, your you, you live well, you know. What does that really mean to live a good life? To live a life that is an example, maybe that is worthy to be imitated by others. You know, in a time of creation, let me say this: in a time of creation, the Bible says that when God breathed into man, he became a living soul. Right? Genesis. That living soul died in Genesis chapter 3 when man decided to be like God, independent from God, and ended up being without God. Did you get that? Man wanted to be like God, independent from God. What, how do you describe that? Being independent self. It's almost like this living soul came with the breath of God and that living soul, soul became a dying soul at the birth of self. Hello? Do you guys get that? And then when you and I got saved, once again God breathed into our, into our lives. We call it being born again. It's not just Oh, Jesus, I love you. And that's it. You know what? The miracle of being born again. You know how Jesus said to, to Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born of the Spirit. Because it's a spiritual kingdom. It's like you cannot be an apple tree just because you want to. You have to be brought, born into a, plant, a kingdom of plants. Hello? Does that make sense? You can't be a dog just because you want to be a dog. You have to be born into the kingdom of animals, of dogs. The same thing, you can't just be a member of the kingdom of God. You have to be born into it. Hello? So when God breathed once again by his spirit, we became a living soul. But for us to continue to become living soul, guess what? Self has to die. That's why you have all these scriptures about death to self, death to self, death itself. Because that soul died in the first creation when self came alive. And then now in the new creation we got a new soul that self has to die again for that soul to stay alive. That's why you and I call the new creation. So what do we do with that? That's why, you know, in some, in some of my sermons, I say, God doesn't care how much money you have. He doesn't care how successful you are. He doesn't care how good you are with your, with your talent, all those things. He wants to remove self in the midst of that. That is the life that I think God is looking for. 
And part of, of, of the, the, the problem with, with that kind of, you know, the, the, the self is that we want to control everything. We want to figure out everything. I went through situations where I said, God, I just don't understand what the heck is going on. Ecclesiastes come out like that and jokes along like that. I don't get what's going on with me. I'm trying to understand. And God said, that's your problem. You're trying to understand. Now it's not the season to understand. It's the season to trust me. Just trust me. It's kind of like Job, you know. When I read Job, and I, it's like God, by the chapter 38, 38 or 40, and then God arrived and started talking, and he's talking about Vermont and, and, and all these massive animals. I said, God, what has that got to do with anything? This guy just lost his family, lost everything. It's like, and then God started talking about creation, and then I realized, you know why God brought creation in the story of Job? Because I think God was saying, listen, Job, I haven't even touched spiritual things. I'm only touched, touching now creation, and your mind won't even com- comprehend. Even just creation, just a natural thing, it blows your mind. I'm not going to go to the spiritual things. Just a natural thing, your mind will not get there. How much more if I start bringing the spiritual stuff? And sometimes we go through life because we just want to control things in our lives. We just want to be in control. And God said, no. You just need to trust. And sometimes God just wants you to to believe when there's nothing to believe. You know, we always talk about faith and we, we, we... we commend people that can raise the dead. Great. I mean, I believe in that. I believe in healings. But sometimes I pray for healings and it doesn't happen. Does that mean I'm going to stop trusting God? No, I still believe God. Why? The person doesn't, I'm not going to even answer that question. Because I don't know. Yeah. See, the problem is we tend to, not because of this, you know, you know what? Just, I don't know. I'm not the Savior. There's only one Savior, Jesus. Yeah. Now, is it my, my lack of faith? I don't know. I'm just going to obey Jesus because the Bible says lay hands on the sick and they will recover. I'm just going to lay hands on the sick because that's what the Word of God says. Yeah. We're trying to be in control of everything. You know the, the best, the be, there are all kinds of faith. Faith that saves, yeah, right? Salvation faith. Faith that heals. Faith that moves mountains. The biggest faith that is discussed in the Bible, in the New Testament, which book discuss this faith? Come on. Hebrews. Do you know the book of Hebrews? What is celebrated in the book of Hebrews is enduring faith. Not so much all this amazing faith is, if you read, read especially Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 and verse 38 or 39 where it says these people believe in faith not seeing what was promised wow in other words they die in faith as a matter of fact it says these people died in faith and not see what was promised and they were commended for their faith why because while dying they're still believing that is the kind of faith that I think God is looking for If I'm going to die, 
I'm going to die believing God. It's that, that simple. And therefore, when you, after chapter 11, you go to, straight to chapter 12, the very verse 1, it says, therefore, he said, and then the word that he used, endure. Christ endure. Because it's faith that endures. Can we be Christians that really learn what it means to endure? You know, we, we are so quick because we're living in an instant sort of uh, instant lifestyle. You know, I got my iPhone and like, you know, something, 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 something wrong with my iPhone. I'm just going to buy a new one because it's easy to buy a new one. In our generation, Herman, you know, something wrong, we fix it, right? <laughs> we fix it. But now something, something goes wrong, we buy a new one. You know, that kind of mindset happens in a relationship. Something wrong with your relationship in the past, we fix it. Today, something wrong with your relationship, you get a new one. <laughs> Let's be Christians that has the faith that endures. Let's all stand up. Father, we thank you, Lord. We ask you, we invite you, Lord, to have your way in us, Lord. With all everything that happens, Lord, earthquake in Bali and uh, and uh, the war, other parts of the world, and and even on a personal basis, the situation with dance. Dad, Lord, we know that you are in control, Lord. Father, we make a fresh commitment, Lord, to surrender everything. Everything, Lord Jesus. We put everything into your hands. Because you are in control, Lord. You are in control. I don't know what you're going through now, but you know what? Let's just have this moment. Just, Lord, I place everything in your hands. talking to someone who's into Eastern religion. We have a discussion and uh, this lady asked me, she said, I suppose your prayer will be the same as our meditation, you know? We just have that, find that peace. It's the same thing, isn't it? I said, well, it's not. Because your meditation is you're trying to, to resolve it yourself. Whereas my prayer is, I'm taking my case and hand it over to somebody else who is more capable than me. Yeah. Knowing that he can do it, not me. And guess what? I can forget about it. Yeah. Because it's his case now. Yeah. So whatever your case now, just lay hands on your heart, on your heart now as we pray. Yeah. Jesus, whether it's relationship, whether it's sickness in the family. Yes, belief or healing, everything. But hand it over. Remember the Bible says, draw your care upon the Lord because he cares for you. So Father, wherever or however the people 
wherever they are and how they get there in the situation they don't know what to do Lord Jesus we just take this case and hand it over into your hands this is life Lord thank you Jesus we want to live a significant life a life that really is just trusting you why don't you raise your hands I'm going to prophesy God's blessing over you Father in the name of Jesus with every hand lifted up before you, I prophesy your blessing from heaven, Lord. As we leave this place, we are people marked by your favor. We will live life to its fullest as your people. Live life significantly, Lord. Yes, Lord. But your blessing will not stop with us, but it will flow out of our lives and touch many lives around us. Family members, husbands, wives, moms and dads, children, and Lord, it will flow into our neighbors, Lord. Our friends at work, at school, unions. Because we are people purchased by the blood of Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you next week. Yeah, give God a hand.